Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Alitu. Podcasting is a lot of hard work, which is why I'm so glad that I found Alitu. Their user-friendly sound editing software has cut my editing time down to a third, leaving me the space to bring you more content. Shout out to Allegra, Judy, and the rest of their support staff who are always there to help me navigate the various challenges this podcast journey throws my way. To learn more about Alitu, go to the link in this episode's show notes to get started with a free seven-day trial. Using my link also helps to support this podcast. Hello, everyone. I am excited to get started with fall on this podcast, and I'm excited about some of the books that I'm going to be reviewing, but also some of the interviews that I'm going to be having. Uh, The next few episodes are going to be a review of a book called Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall. Imagine me reading this book and my dreadlocks are being blown back every time I like flip to a new chapter. It is it is really, really good. So as is my pattern when I find a book that's really good, I tend to not add so much commentary and to kind of just piece together some really good quotes that kind of give a snapshot into what the author is covering. I will give you a warning that Maya Jane is currently um, being fed dinner, so she's very screechy and loud right now. So if you hear some screams in the background, enjoy those cameos from Maya Jane. But to hop in, I really like how this author introduces herself at the start of the books. Quote, I'm a feminist, mostly. I'm an asshole, mostly. I say these things because they are true. And in doing so, the fact that I am not nice is often brought up. And it's true. I'm not really a nice person. I am, at times, a kind person. But nice? Nope. Not unless I'm dealing with people I love, the elderly, or small children. What's the difference? I am always willing to help someone in need, whether I know them or not. But niceness is more than helping. It is stopping to listen, to connect, to be gentle with your words. I reserve nice for people who are nice to me or for those who I know need it because of their circumstances. There are people in feminist circles who are nice, who are diplomatic, with soothing ways, and the warm personality that enables them to put up with other people's shit without complaining. They have their lane, and for the most part, I think they handle things well. But my lane is different. I'm the feminist people call when being sweet isn't enough, when saying things kindly, repeatedly, is not working. I'm the feminist who walks into a meeting and says, hey, you're fucking up, and here's why. And nice feminists feign shock at my harsh words. They soothe hurt feelings, tell people they understand exactly why my words upset them. And then, when the inevitable question of, she hurt our feelings, but she has a point, comes up, 
The same nice feminist voices say the same things they had been trying and failing to convince people of before. Only now people can hear them, because my yelling made folks pull their heads out of the sand. After the pearl clutching about my meanness passes, what's left is the realization that they have wronged someone, that they have not been as good, as helpful, as generous as they needed to think they were all along. That's the point of this book. It's not going to be a comfortable read, but it is going to be an opportunity to learn for those who are willing to do the hard work. It is not meant to be easy to read, nor is it a statement that major issues facing marginalized communities cannot be fixed. But no problem like racism, misogynoir, or homophobia ever went away because everyone ignored it. I don't and won't pretend to have all the answers. What I do have is a deep desire to move the conversation about solidarity and the feminist movement in a direction that recognizes that an intersectional approach to feminism is key to improving relationships between communities of women so that some measure of true solidarity can happen. Erasure is not equality, least of all in a movement that draws much of its strength from the claim that it represents over half of the world's population, end quote. So one of the words that jumped out is the term intersectionality. And intersectionality is a term to describe that we're not just looking at things from one angle. So when we talk about marginalized, we're not just talking about people of color. We're also talking about people of color who are women. So that's a double minority. On top of that, you have those same things, but let's say somebody who's living in poverty, and then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. So intersectionality covers a lot of different aspects of society, and I'm going to do my best to try to convey those conversations as I continue. So as far as the purpose of this book, the author says, quote, this book is about the health of the community as a whole with a specific focus on supporting the most vulnerable members. It will focus largely on the experiences of the marginalized and address the issues faced by most women, instead of the issues that only concern a few, as has been the common practice of feminists to date, because tackling those larger issues is key to equality for all women. This book will explain how poor women struggling to put food on the table people in inner cities fighting to keep schools open, and rural populations fighting for the most basic of choices about their bodies are feminist concerns and should be centered in this movement. I will delve into why, even when these issues are covered, the focus is rarely on those most severely impacted. For example, when we talk about rape culture, the focus is often on potential date rape of suburban teens, not the higher rates of sexual assault and abuse faced by indigenous American and Alaskan women. Assault of sex workers, cis and trans, is completely obscured because they aren't the right kind of victims. Feminism in the hood is for everyone because everyone needs it. End quote. So after the introduction, the author goes into the first chapter, which is titled Solidarity is Still for White Women. And what I'm gathering is that this author is trying to address 
aspects of feminism that you don't hear a lot about, but keeping it very down to earth. And so there's definitely a variety of issues that are going to be addressed in this book. So I'm going to start with a quote to kind of introduce this chapter. Since its inception, Main Street feminism has been insisting that some women have to wait longer for equality, that once one group, usually white women, achieves equality, then that opens the way for all other women. But when it comes right down to it, mainstream white feminism often fails to show up for women of color. While white feminism can lean in, can prioritize the CEO level at work, it fails to show up when black women are not being hired because of their names or fired for hairstyles. It's silent when schools discriminated against girls of color, whether it is the centering of white women, even when women of color are most likely to be at risk, or the complete erasure of issues most likely to impact those who are not white. White feminism tends to forget that a movement that claims to be for all women has to engage with the obstacles women who are not white face. Trans women are often derided or erased while prominent feminist voices parrot the words of conservative bigots, framing womanhood as biological and determined at birth instead of as a fluid and often arbitrary social construct. Trans women of color, who are among the most likely targets of violence, see statistics that reflect their reality co-opted to bolster the idea that all women are facing the same level of danger, yet support from mainstream white feminists for issues that directly impact trans women has been, at best, minimal, and often non-existent. From things as basic as access to public bathrooms to job protection, there's a dearth of mainstream white feminist voices speaking out against trans exclusionary policies and laws. A one-size-fits-all approach to feminism is damaging because it alienates the very people it is supposed to serve without ever managing to support them. For women of color, the expectation that we prioritize gender over race, that we treat the patriarchy as something that gives all men the same power, leaves many of us feeling isolated. So as you can see here, we're going into intersectionality and how it's more complicated than just feminism on the difference between men and women. It's going to deeper levels of identity and socioeconomics and social and biological, a lot of other levels there. So continuing on, quote, the language surrounding whatever issues feminists choose to focus on should reflect an understanding of how the issue's impact varies for women in different socioeconomic positions. The conversation around work, for instance, should recognize that for many people, needing to work to survive is a fact of life. We can't let respectability politics that is, an attempt by marginalized groups to internally police members so that they fall in line with the dominant culture's norms, create an idea that only some women are worthy of respect or protection. Respectability narratives discourage us from addressing the needs of sex workers, incarcerated women, or anyone else who has had to face hard life choices. No woman has to be respectable to be valuable. 
We can't demand that people work in order to live, then demand that they be respected only if they do work that doesn't challenge outdated ideas around women's rights to control their bodies. Too often, mainstream feminism embraces an idea that women must follow a work path prescribed by cisgender white men in order for their labor to matter. But everyone, from a person who needs care to a stay-at-home parent to a sex worker, matters and deserves to be respected whether they are in their home or in an office. This tendency to assume that all women are experiencing the same struggles has led us to a place where reproductive health imagery centers on cisgender, able-bodied women to the exclusion of those who are trans, intersex, or otherwise inhabiting bodies that don't fit the narrow idea that genitalia dictates gender. You can have no uterus and still be a woman, after all. Employment Equality statistics project the idea that all women make 77 cents to a man's dollar when the reality is that white women make that much and women of color make less than white women. Affirmative action complaints, including those filed by white women, hinge on the idea that people of color are getting the most benefit when the reality is that white women benefit the most from affirmative action policies. The sad reality is that while white women are an oppressed group, they still wield more power than any other group of women, including the power to oppress both men and women of color. The myth of the strong black woman has made it so that white women can tell themselves that it is okay to expect us to wait to be equal with them because they need it more. The fact that black women are supposedly tougher than white women means that we are built to face abuse and ignorance, and that our need for care or concern is less pressing. When white feminism ignores history, ignores that the tears of white women have the power to get black people killed, while insisting that all women are on the same side, it doesn't solve anything. Look at Carolyn Bryant, who lied about Emmett Till whistling at her in 1955 despite knowing who had killed him, and that he was innocent of even the casual disrespect she had claimed, she carried on with the lie for another 50 years after his lynching and death. Though her family says she regretted it for the rest of her life, she still sat on the truth for decades and helped his murderers walk free. How does feminism reconcile itself to that kind of wound between groups without addressing the racism that caused it. End quote. <sighs> I took a deep breath there because the author in the introduction says that this isn't an easy book to read or to process, but I greatly appreciate the energy and the detail that this author is giving on these various issues. Given my focus on people of color on this podcast, it's great to be able to learn about the unique issues to marginalized women, especially those of color. So the next chapter in the book is on gun violence. The next quote I'm going to share starts with, well, what does feminism have to do with guns? And the author um, definitely makes a great case for why gun violence is definitely a feminist issue. And 
this is something that I'm learning about this book is that things that wouldn't off the top of your head be thought of as, oh, this is a feminist issue. She's making space for these conversations because it's all interconnected. So here we go. Quote, what does feminism have to do with guns? After all, guns aren't a feminist issue, right? Except they are. They just might not be a feminist issue for your life. Not right now, anyway. But many women, especially those from lower-income communities, face gun violence every day. The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation makes it five times more likely that the woman will be killed. Women get killed by these guns because they are available, because their partners are violent, because an accident with a gun is more likely to be fatal, because of a dozen mundane reasons made worse by the availability of weapons. Although we tend to focus on the impact on young men who are exposed to gun violence, girls are likewise gravely affected. Girls drop out of school at nearly the same rate as boys in effort to avoid having to pass through places where shootings are common. That is, in an effort to survive. Mothers bury their children because of gun violence. Families are irrevocably changed by guns. Mainstream feminism has to engage with gun violence as an everyday occurrence in the lives of some women. It can't be treated as a distant problem when in some neighborhoods bullets are as common as rain. In order to adequately address the needs of the girls and women who deal with the consequences of what amounts to a full-scale public health crisis every day, mainstream feminism has to be listening advocating, and providing resources. A 12-year-old girl was shot on her porch a few blocks from my house while I was writing this chapter. The gun used to injure her didn't belong on the street. She's one of hundreds of girls who will be impacted by gun violence this year, one of almost 200,000 children impacted by gun violence since the Columbine shootings in 1999. You may think that gun violence is a distant problem, nothing to do with you, but if you pause, if you look around, if you look outside the bubble that privilege has created where you don't have to worry about gun violence on a regular basis, you'll see it's a public epidemic that we ignore. Every state, every city, and every income level has been impacted by gun violence. End quote. And so the author next is going to take it a little bit farther to kind of go back into that intersectionality of how not only is gun violence a feminist issue, but how it specifically plays out in communities of color. Quote, intimate partner violence isn't the only risk of violence that black women face. Police violence, particularly being collateral deaths and police misconduct, is a risk that is rarely discussed in feminist circles, but is something that Black Lives Matter and campaigns like hashtag SayHerName attempt to address. Their work is made more difficult not only by the lack of any official data, but also by community norms that center on cisgender men. I could be any of the women we have seen brutalized or killed by police in recent years as videos proliferate. I could have been that little girl down the street who was shot in the ankle while I wrote the draft of this chapter. Or I could be Rakia Boyd, a young black woman in Chicago 
who happened to be standing next to a man holding a phone to his ear when an off-duty police officer, mistaking the phone for a gun, opened fire and shot her in the head. The man with the phone was shot in the hand. Rakia died at the scene. She committed no crime, and the officer who shot her served not a single day in jail despite admitting he shot over his shoulder as he drove away. He wasn't working. He was a newcomer to the area who owned property nearby, and still the gun in his hand took a young woman's life. I can't tell you how many times I have been in contact with police officers over the years. I have been verbally abused by a police officer, threatened, harassed, but never assaulted. That's not a statement about who I am or how I engage. It's just the luck of the draw. There's a tendency to assume that women who do have negative interactions are at fault. But if you can be shot standing still or asleep in your own home, can be brutalized for seeking help, then it would seem that engaging the police at all is inherently risky, end quote. I like that the author shares her experiences with law enforcement and a common theme that the author has talked about through some of these quotes that I've been sharing is respectability politics. And so to define that respectability politics is that usually when something bad happens, people will ignorantly ask follow-up questions. So for example, a young black man is gunned down by law enforcement. Most people's first reaction would be, what was he pulled over for? Or what was he doing that um, triggered this, right? What was his attitude towards law enforcement? What was he wearing, right? What was his record? But what happens is people will try to justify this as an accident before we even know what went down. When the author shares that, you know, she's been harassed, she's been, um, you know, mistreated by law enforcement and things like that, it's yet another example that is definitely a reality for people of color in this country. I've shared... um, not sure what episode it was, but I've shared in the past about how I have had an encounter with law enforcement where it escalated from me rolling my window down to the officer telling me that he has the ability to take my life. And so the topic of gun violence, especially as it pertains to marginalized communities, is definitely uh, very nuanced because while gun violence from civilians is one thing. We have the barrier of lack of trust for law enforcement because of how we're typically treated by law enforcement and how we see over and over again the times that interactions with law enforcement due to mundane or even innocent things, like the one guy literally was talking on a phone an off-duty cop who was in a car driving away, looking over his shoulder, shot at him, killed the little girl next to him, and shot the man in the hand. And there's no consequences for it. The takeaway here for me is that people need to understand that it's really hard to trust a organization 
i.e. law enforcement, when we see these things happening over and over again. And as I've shared in the many books and conversations that I've had on this podcast, law enforcement, police in the United States started out as slave catching. So it's systemic, it is generational, and then there's so much nuance to it. Hopefully I'm making sense here. It's a near impossible situation for community and marginalized communities facing gun violence because on one hand, it's a sense of hopelessness because it's surrounding people and it's tragedy after tragedy, trauma. But then the only help seems to be law enforcement, which has a really bad track record with protecting marginalized people. And then on top of that, When law enforcement gets involved and that turns tragic, there's usually no accountability. And then lots of people like to swoop in on the conversation with respectability politics. Well, what kind of person was this person that was shot down by the police? In the George Floyd trial, they tried to make a case for the guy who killed him by going into George Floyd's past of opiate addiction, which has nothing to do with the fact that a human's life was taken away by law enforcement. But this is what the media does, and this is what the court system does. It goes to respectability. Well, maybe his life didn't matter as much because of this thing that perceivably makes him not respectful or worthwhile. And it's quite heartbreaking. But I'm going to get into the Next chapter, which talks about how hunger is also a feminist issue. The author talks about her own experiences in this chapter with uh, dealing with poverty and a relationship that turned toxic and, you know, finding a way to rebuild her life and stuff like that. So this is kind of this quote is coming on the tail end of that story. So, quote, If this were the usual heartwarming, feel-good tale about single parenting and poverty, you might come away thinking, well, if she could do it, why can't everyone else? And you might expect me to say, it was hard, but I learned so much, and I remember that time fondly. What I remember is the hunger, and crying when I couldn't afford a Christmas tree. I remember being afraid that I couldn't make it, that I could lose my child because I couldn't provide. It's hard to take a rich woman's children. It is remarkably easy to take a poor woman's, though. As a society, we tend to treat hunger as a moral failing, as a sign that someone is lacking in a fundamental way. We remember to combat hunger around the holidays, but we judge the mothers who have to rely on food banks, free or reduced lunches at school, or food stamps for not being able to stand against a problem that baffles governments around the world. Indeed, we treat poverty itself like a crime, like the women experiencing it are making bad choices for themselves and their children on purpose. We ignore that they don't have a good choice available, that they're making decisions in the space where the handholds are tenuous or non-existent, Women in these circumstances may not have a grocer that sells fresh produce, or at least not one that sells produce they can afford. They may be working too many hours to be able to prepare food, 
or they might be dealing with food shortage issues. The story behind that pack of chips and soda at the bus stop is often far more complicated than any ideas of a lack of nutritional knowledge, laziness, or even neglect. Sometimes the food you can access comes from gas stations, liquor stores, and fast food restaurants, and not a fully stocked grocery store, much less a kitchen. For families headed by women and by other marginalized people, feminism has to come through to combat food insecurity. From higher prices for fresh foods to insufficient government funding for programs that address hunger on a systemic level. Without support from feminists with privilege and access, families facing food insecurity will suffer despite their best efforts. Hunger saps your energy, your will. It eats up the space that you might have used to achieve with the need to survive. As feminist issues go, there are none that span more women and their families than this one. Food is a human right. Access to adequate food and nutrition allows communities to thrive. It allows women to fight for all their rights. Food security allows for marginalized women's participation in political and other organizational spaces key for defending their interest against other forms of structural oppression. Bringing about feminist changes will only be truly possible if mainstream feminism works to combat discrimination in all its forms, from gender to class and race. True equity starts with ensuring that everyone has access to the most basic of needs, end quote. And so the last chapter that I'm going to share on this episode, the title of the chapter is of hashtag fast-tailed girls and freedom. So this chapter talks about Again, those respectability politics, but it focuses on marginalized communities, how it pertains to sexuality. And this one is actually the one I I grabbed the most quotes from. So it's going to sound like I'm reading a, a lot from the chapter, but I'm actually just piecing together several highlights that I took from this chapter. Quote, Like a lot of others, I was a fast-tailed girl before I really understood what those words meant. It's one of those colloquialisms we hear as a child in certain communities that is half-warning, half-pejorative. To be a fast-tailed girl is to be sexually promiscuous in some way. You were warned both not to be a fast-tailed girl and not to associate with those fast-tailed girls. Sometimes it is shortened to fast but either way, it is presented as a bad thing. The elders who typically use it are often attempting to protect young women from being perceived as Jezebels. When you consider the long history of sexual violence perpetrated against black women in America, the roots of this particular aspect of respectability politics are easy to grasp. Here, respectability politics are not just about clothes or speech. They are about governing how young black women engage with their own sexuality as it is developing. This is meant to be protective, but it is often oppressive. However well-meaning, warnings about avoiding being fast are a deeply flawed response to the problem of sexual violence. Why? Well, 
You don't actually have to be sexually precocious to be labeled as a fast hill girl. Perception is everything, and so a host of perfectly normal, age-appropriate behaviors like talking to boys, wearing shorts, and wearing makeup, or even going through puberty early are enough to convince some people that you're headed for trouble. And once that perception is entrenched, any bad things that happen to you are automatically your fault. Like other expressions of Madonna horror complexes, there is an idea that bad things don't happen to good girls. Research done over the past decade by the Black Women's Blueprint and the Black Women's Health Imperative, two organizations that work to address the specific needs and concerns of black women, show that some 40 to 60% of black American girls are sexually abused before age 18, and those girls are likely to be labeled fast-tailed retroactively by people who need to believe that what happened to them was their fault, because they must have done something to entice a man's interest. The victims watch their abusers, evade scrutiny, and ultimately justice. This is nowhere more evident than in the recent condemnation of R. Kelly, whose marriage in 1994 to then-15-year-old Aaliyah, as well as alleged video evidence of him urinating on another teenager, and his subsequent trial on child pornography charges weren't enough to end his career, much less impact his freedom. In turn, the girls were blamed for being near him, for not knowing better, for not being prepared to navigate interactions with an adult predator who had celebrity and wealth on his side. I can't say I'm surprised by Kelly's ability to avoid consequences. Often, it is easier for the community to focus on the girls than on the potential predators. Girls of color in a patriarchal system have experienced more abuse, violence, adversity, and deprivation than protection. Yet programs that focus on at-risk girls tend to focus more on job skills and preventing pregnancy and not on equipping them with better coping mechanisms. We need to shift the conversation about systems from vague assertions that work is empowering and early pregnancy is bad to one where we support the healing and healthy development of girls and young women in every community. While the suffragette and labor movements of the early 20th century brought about great strides towards equality for white women, for black women in particular, and women of color in general, unpunished sexual violence was and remains a constant threat. Despite the narratives espoused by lynching advocates, white women were not the ones who were most at risk from sexual violence. Black women were expected to adhere to every aspect of respectability pushed on them by Jim Crow laws as well as by community norms established in the wake of slavery. However, it didn't really matter how black women and girls dressed or behaved because white men could and often did assault them for sport. That dynamic of racism and misogyny intertwined continues to haunt our culture even as we attempt to combat it. We know that women of color are more likely to be victims of police brutality and less likely to be supported, much less protected. When we encourage victims to turn to the police but ignore that the second most common form of police misconduct is sexual assault, how are we helping victims feel safer? 
We do know from a report published by CNN in October 2018 that between 2005 and 2013, police officers were charged with at least 400 sexual assaults. Additionally, during that same time span, officers were accused of over 600 incidents of groping. It goes without saying, however, that these aren't the kinds of numbers that can make a victim feel safe going to the authorities, even before you get into the sad reality that reporting rarely leads to justice. So one of the things that really struck me about this chapter is how the author discusses two dilemmas going on at the same time. So the fact that respectability politics related to how women of color present and explore their sexuality and how there tends to be a default to victim blaming based on these respectability politics. And then there's also the nuance of how people of color have good reasons to be distrustful of law enforcement and then add on top of that the number of cases of people who are mistreated by law enforcement, but typically when it comes to abuse or sexual assault, the only answer that people have is to go to the authorities. So it's kind of that same cycle of dead ends as far as being able to get help. Uh, I'm going to continue with a few more highlights from this chapter. Quote, Rape culture, a system that positions some bodies as deserving to be attacked, hinges on ignoring the mistreatment of marginalized women. Whether they are in the inner city, on a reservation, are migrant workers, or are incarcerated, because their bodies are seen as available and often disposable, sexual violence is tactily normalized even as people decry its impact on those with more privilege. Rape culture doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is built consciously and unconsciously by societal norms. It requires everyone else to buy into respectability as safety, then immediately position every step away from that standard as culpability for being violated. Rape culture is normalized and ratified not only by patriarchal notions of ownership and disposability, but also by attempts to combat it by buying into the framing that the patriarchy creates. Respectability politics, victim blaming, and fetishization can only create a fundamentally flawed and dangerous response. But if we believe that only some people deserve safety, that the right to your own body has to be earned through adhering to arbitrary rules, then are we really seeing each other as equals, as human beings at all? Obviously, the problem isn't going to be resolved by a hashtag or by a few thought pieces, but the first step to finding a solution is admitting that there is something to be fixed. We'll need to keep having these conversations, keep being open to the idea of working against these socially ingrained notions so that we can stop them. The problem is not unique to black communities, to the cisgendered, to heterosexuals, but as with every other community it touches, the internal work must be done so that the external problems can be addressed. This is a sickness that touches so many, 
and we need to work as partners with each other to heal it. Yet this is not a call for outside assistance. This is a message for those outside our communities to address the racialized misogyny in their communities that perpetuates the idea of black women as Jezebels. Any solution to this problem will require society to address all the racist, sexist tropes that frame women of color as sexually available and unrapeable. Freedom has a price that we all must pay together. It is not going to happen if the stats used to combat rape culture are based on the harm done to marginalized women, but the beneficiaries of any advances are only those who have some measure of protection via white privilege. We know that trans women of color are especially vulnerable to violence. We know that whole communities of indigenous women have nowhere to turn for safety. We know that danger comes from the very people who are supposed to be our protectors, whether that be the police or men in our communities. Rape culture is pandemic and must be fought unanimously or we will never defeat it. And though I have largely focused on the objectifying narratives around the bodies of women of color and how mainstream feminism fails to engage them, I am in no way saying that sexual violence is the only concern of cis women. While cis women experience some of the highest rates of sexual assault, trans and gender nonconforming people also face a heightened risk. And from a college campus to the military to a prison, no place is safe. Mingled among the victim-blaming tropes that position location as a factor for victimization is the reality that rapists attack in any environment where they think they can succeed, and attempts to place bans on women in the military and trans women in bathrooms, or to assert that people who have been in prison deserve to be subjected to sexual violence, is just feeding into rape culture from different angles. Assertion that sex workers can't be assaulted, or that they exist as a release valve to prevent sexual violence, are fundamentally rooted in narratives that render bodies disposable without interrogating how deep into rape culture these so-called feminist narratives have fallen. We must remember that every victim of sexual violence does not deserve it, did not invite it, and is not responsible for the culture that would blame the victim instead of the perpetrators. We must understand that not only do we have a responsibility to not blame victims, but that we must actively work against cultural memes that render it acceptable to foster the hypersexualization of potential targets based on skin color, gender expression, or age. End quote. So I hope that by listening to some of the things that I highlighted as I read this first, I would say about third of this book called Hood Feminism, that you've gotten something from it. I had to challenge myself not to highlight everything because the content is so good and um, spot on. And there have been times, you know, when I did the summer book club that I, I asked myself, I was like, is is this kind of format of, you know, reading a book and sharing my notes and highlights and some reflections on what I'm reading actually beneficial to listeners. And um, while I didn't specifically survey or ask it, I did get a lot of feedback of people who said that 
they found it very helpful to kind of get the the highlights or the uh, Cliff Notes version of these books, whether or not they would choose to go actually read the entire book or not. So based on that feedback, I'm going to keep going with it because I, I personally enjoy sharing insights of what I read. And it seems like uh, the listeners are getting something out of that too. But before I wrap up for today, this book, Hood Feminism, uh, will cover several more uh, topics that I'll be kind of breaking down over the next couple of episodes. So some of those topics are patriarchy, body image, eating disorders, fetishization, intelligence, crime, fear, race, poverty politics, education, housing, reproductive justice, and parenting. So definitely be sure to tune in to the next episode as I continue to discuss this book called Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.